from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, Benjamin Ensor. I'm here in the studio after saying goodbye to this week's fantastic guests. We're covering some big stories this week, including Monzo automatically opts in customers for its Plus feature trial. And our view was it's the right thing to do to try and uh, generate more revenue from customers by offering them more value, but the wrong thing to do to opt them in automatically. There would have been better ways. So good idea, poor execution. Egypt's MNT Halan is Africa's newest unicorn. The company provides a wide variety of different types of loans and digital wallets. Super exciting, such a large market, such a big opportunity. Um, really interesting to hear Ahmed talking about their plans to use that and how that's going to help them grow the business. And HSBC staff get a uniform of jumpsuits and jeans. And our panel questioned whether you can really have a casual uniform. But agreed that it's good to make employees feel comfortable at work. We get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Hey there, financial risk and compliance professionals. Would you like to know how your peers are preparing for the year ahead? Well, the good news is Comply Advantage's new State of Financial Crime report is built on a global survey of 800 senior compliance professionals. So it provides a clear-eyed look at the views of the financial services industry. To explore trends including environmental crime, crowdfunding, sanctions on Russia, and much more, download your copy of the report at complyadvantage.com insights. Welcome to episode 705 of FinTech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensel, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS, and I'm joined on this week's FinTech Insider News by three fantastic guests who are going to help me break down this week's biggest stories in FinTech and financial services. So firstly, it's a welcome return to FinTech Insider News for Kate Drew, Director of Research at CCG Catalyst. Welcome back to the show, Kate. Can you remind our listeners about you and CCG Catalyst, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me back. Um, like you said, I lead research at CCG Catalyst. We're a financial services consulting firm really focused on the intersection of banking and fintech. And I manage our pipeline of research content, both on the client side and externally through our own research reports and commission research reports as well. Fantastic. Welcome back. We have a fintech insider debut for Krista Holloman, founder of Divido and an angel investor. Welcome to the show, Krista. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you give our listeners an introduction to you and to Divido, please? Sure. So Divido is the world's largest white label platform for buy now, pay later. So we license the software to retailers and to banks that want to offer this option to its customers. Uh, we're backed by American Express, MasterCard, and clients like BMW, uh, and many others around 10 countries. Fantastic. Welcome. And it's a shame that this is a podcast because Krista has the most amazing view over New York and behind him. So if we suddenly talk about the view, that's because Krista has got an amazing view <laughs> behind him. Okay. And our last guest, uh, another debut uh, on Fintech Insider, is Ahmed Mosen, Chief Technology Officer of MNT Halan. Welcome, Ahmed. We're going to get into your news a little bit later, but can you tell us a little bit about um, MTN Halan, please? Uh, of course. Uh, MNT Halan is uh, a fintech, digitally banking the unbanked. We provide uh, credit services, both as working capital loans and consumer financing. 
We also are very big on payments, so we have a huge payment section, uh, having the largest uh, independent mobile wallet in Egypt. Uh, and of course, to complement that, we, we have uh, an e-commerce uh, part on our super app. So it's really uh, a digital platform encompassing all these services in one ecosystem to provide all financial services uh, possible to, uh, to Egypt's underbanked. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to discussing more about your news and apologies for getting the letters in MNT the wrong way around um, in my description just then. No worries. So welcome to the show to all three of you. And with that, let's get into the news. So our first story comes from here in the UK, which is that Monzo is automatically opting customers in for its plus feature trial. So UK digital bank Monzo has automatically opted some of its current account customers into a free trial of its Monzo plus paid account. A number of Monzo users opened their app to be greeted with the message, we've upgraded your account for free. The app then states underneath, there's no automatic payment at the end, you'll only pay if you choose to sign up. And these customers have been given access to Monzo Plus's premium features, including a credit tracker, virtual cards and advanced roundups, which usually cost £5 per month for subscription. Controversially, there was no opt-in option. The upgrade happened automatically when customers opened their app. But they can opt out at any time. This strategy has divided Monzo customers, with many taking to Twitter to comment. George Cohen tweeted, To the Monzo product manager that thought it would be a good idea to force me to start a free trial of Monzo Plus, it's not okay to experiment on your clients like this. I never asked for this, and you come in and mess around with my bank account. Not cool. While Neil Archibald tweeted, whoever had the idea of just giving me Monzo Plus as a free trial knows what they're doing. I've seen it and I love it. So we asked our audience on the 11FS uh, LinkedIn, that's you, our listeners, um, whether you thought this was a good approach from Monzo or not. We got more than 300 votes from you so far. 32% of you said you thought it was a good idea. 68% of you, including me, spoiler, um, said bad idea. Um, <laughs> So what do we think? What do our panelists think? Um, Kate, do you want to go first? What was your thoughts on this? I guess whether or not it's a good idea will depend on how successful it is, right, in helping to drive more revenue and eventually get to profitability. I think that's, that's the key here. Honestly, my first thought when I read this story was that I would expect to see a story like this coming from like a large organization where, you know, decisions are sometimes made in silos or maybe they're just throwing things at the wall um, and it ends up in the news. I was surprised to see it coming from a company like Monzo, but I think most likely they are taking a calculated risk here where they said, okay, this might upset a few users, but maybe it will be sticky enough to pay off in the long run. I'd be really interested though in how they decided which users to opt into this, um, you know, if that was based on who they thought would benefit most or if it was based on who they thought, you know, could reasonably afford it or a certain demographic that is typical of the Monzo Plus user. Those would kind of be my, like, most burning questions. But, yeah, I mean, I think profitability is super important right now um, for companies like Monzo to, to demonstrate. And I think probably someone took a calculated risk there. So if I paraphrase your question, you, your answer, you were sort of saying, well, if it works and it leads to profit, it's okay. But is that what you meant? I mean, you can do anything to customers so long as you make a profit from it? That's not, that's not what you meant, right? 
No, that's not what I mean. I think though, if it ends up being successful and customers stick with it, <laughs> that would be an indication that they were happy with it, right? Got it. Got it. Krista, what did you think? Well, it kind of reminds me a little bit about how uh, iTunes uh, gave everyone uh, the the U two song uh, songs of innocence automatically in their iTunes accounts without really asking them. Um, I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I appreciate a lot of people like U two. I'm not a huge fan, so it would be very annoying for me to be given something that I didn't ask for. Um, but ultimately, uh, it's, a, it's a great way, I guess, for them to do A-B testing, I suppose. But why didn't they simply give people the choice to take a box to say, hey, we want to give you this for free. Would you like to check it out? I think that would have been a more uh, agreeable way to give people a tr- uh, an offer like this. Um, personally, I'm a little bit skeptical about free trials because I, I'm one of those that always forgets to cancel. Um, I had it happen the other day, Adobe Stock, if you know that uh, stock image service. I paid three months. It's like $30 a month uh, until Ooh. I realized I've been paying for this service that I'm not being using. So I had to call them and complain. And, and luckily, I got my money back. But, you know, the principle is, the, is what I was upset about. That's, that's quite a bit of money for, for, for free imagery. Um, Ahmed, have you thought about doing something like this? Would you, would you, would you opt your customers in to a, to a sort of free trial of a premium service? Uh, uh, probably we would be asking for consent. We haven't done it. Uh, naturally, most of our services do have uh, an expense to it. We don't have like a, a premium uh, service or a premium subscription yet. We do sometimes do offers to our users, but uh, it's, uh, it's mostly through consent uh, from the user part. So let's come back to this point then about... Um... Could, could Monzo have done this in a different way? Because Monzo was originally started as a sort of community and was very much, you know, using its community, it had open roadmaps and so on. It was very much asking its customers what they wanted. Um, so it seems a little bit of a culture shift for Monzo to launch something to customers without sort of asking them and involving them. Could they have done this in a different way? I mean, Kate, do you look at this and so? I completely take your point that they need to get to profitability. But do you think they could have done this in a different way? Have you seen other banks maybe or other firms doing this perhaps more effectively? I think, I mean, one thing, and again, this sort of goes back to how how they they decided who they were going to roll this out to. But one thing, you know, that they could do is is have people opt into trying new things broadly. Um, you know, if you wanted to be someone who is part of the community who who tries, you know, new things that you might not already be subscribed to, and then you'd have, you know, a pool that's ready and waiting, or even just communication, you know, communicating that this is going to be happening. And, you know, you can certainly opt out if you want to, but we want to give everybody an opportunity to experience these features to see, you know, if you like them. I hope that that's, you know, ultimately what is at the heart of this, which is, you know, helping people see the value in this product in a way that doesn't force them to commit, even if um, sort of the execution of that was maybe a little bungled. Yeah, a bit, a bit, a bit goofy. Krista, how do, how do they avoid um, the problem you've got with you know, your, your three months of stock imagery that you didn't need? <laughs> how, do they ha- how do you think they need to handle the end of the, 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 the free trial? Well, I mean, the key is that they don't just start charging. I presume they have some car details, maybe the monster car details. I think that would be uh, very, could backfire even more than what we've seen already on Twitter, like the tweets you mentioned. 
Um, I think that's the key, that it needs to be a very much an opt-in if you are wanting to keep the service after the, this little surprise trial. Yeah, because if you're automatically opted into a subscription to a product you don't want, <laughs> yeah, that's going to backfire horribly, isn't it? Yeah, so they must they must have thought that through, or at least they, they'll be thinking this through very hard um, right now. Okay, and um, so coming back to this point about profitability, um, Kate, you know, you're, you're obviously you're spot on that they need to need to drive to profitability. Do you think premium current accounts, oh, sorry, or premium accounts for for people outside the UK is 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 the way forward? Do you think there are other things, there other products they should be you know promoting uh, instead? You know, investments or or uh, cards, credit cards, and things like that. Um, what's your thought on the product strategy? I would say I think you probably want to have a multifaceted strategy, right? I do like the subscription model. In the US, you know, a lot of our neobanks don't lend. So they are very reliant on interchange. And I think this is really a comment more about the broader market. I think, you know, it's important to find other avenues to generate revenue and then ultimately income. Um, but obviously, it's really hard because when you're selling a premium product, you've really got to convince customers that you're adding value. And for for example, in the US, a lot of the bigger banks can just kind of come in and replicate some of those tools. So it's tricky. I think that there can be, you know, real value in in that, but it has to be done extremely thoughtfully and and to, you know, create, you know, real differentiation for your customer base. Oh, man, I'd love you to, to sort of close this this story. I'm, I'm sort of thinking about how you think about the choice you can make sometimes between maybe sort of premium products and selling more to your existing customers or widening out the product range and trying to provide them other things that are useful and valuable for them. How do you sort of make some of those decisions on do we try and charge more for what we already have or you know, build more things? How do, you, how do you sort of take some of those decisions? So uh, we, we go through these decisions a lot. And, and typically what tends to happen is we, we focus on the customer. So anything that would add value to our customer and, uh, and to the ecosystem, uh, we definitely uh, go for that. We try to keep uh, unit economics very focused on unit economics. And uh, in, the, in the beginning of, uh, of Helen, we actually started as a ride-hailing company to gain users with financial services in mind. And we aborted that in 2019 because uh, it was just uh, not profitable. And we focused on financial services after we had gained a lot of uh, users. And we had to do that gradually by offering these services to our users in a, in a very gradual way uh, to promote uh, financial services while all they knew about Helen was ride hailing and, uh, and delivery services. What was it you gave? You, sorry, you said you you gave up part of the strategy. What was it you gave up? Um, we, we gave up ride hailing. Okay, you gave up the ride hailing. Yeah, okay. yeah. That's what, that's what I thought. Okay. Um, well, I think we're going to wrap that uh, wrap wrap up this item. Uh, Krista, do you, do you, last question then, very quickly to you. Do you think we'll see more fintechs following Monzo's approach, or do you think Monzo's made a mistake here and that, that other firms won't follow this? I think Kate's point was excellent around we clearly need to identify new ways to make money, even if it's just on the margin for each individual customer. So I think we'll definitely see more of that. But in terms of the execution, yeah, I'm, I'm sure others will consider a more um, fair ways of, of putting putting this upon people than just like, give it to them. Um, so, so right idea, wrong execution. 
Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is that Egypt's MNT Halan is Africa's newest unicorn. Congratulations. So Egyptian fintech and e-commerce ecosystem MNT Halan has raised up to $400 million in equity and debt financing. The raise comes from both local and global investors as it continues to serve underbanked and unbanked customers in Egypt. In 2021, Halan, which was operating a digital wallet that offered bill payments, e-commerce and ride-hailing, as well as micro, nano and consumer loans, entered into a swap agreement with MNT Investments, a micro-lending platform operating in Egypt with routes dating back to 2010, to provide financing solutions for the underbanked and unbanked. Headquartered in Egypt, its digital ecosystem connects consumers, merchants, and micro-enterprises with business loans, consumer finance, payments, buy now, pay later, and e-commerce offerings, all backed by Neuron, its proprietary technology. Ahmed, so great to have you here to discuss this news. Firstly, congratulations. Fantastic news. Exciting for you all. Um, What's the key mission of of the business? You've got a number of products and so on. How do you think about what's your sort of vision? What's the key mission that you're after? We're we're after providing financial services to the underbanked. So we have uh, 100 million population uh, in Egypt. Uh, most of them, a big, a very big chunk of them, are underbanked, have no access to credit facilities. Uh, we we do that. We help we help most Egyptians grow their businesses. Uh, and uh, offer consumer financing loans, offer uh, cashless uh, payments, and uh, seamless transfers uh, of money. Uh, so the mission really is providing financial services to the underbanked, and we're hoping uh, to do that internationally as well very soon after, uh, after this uh, news. Your chief technology officer for the business, how does the, the proprietary software that you have um, enable you to succeed? Does that give you certain competitive advantages? Or are there things that you can do that maybe some of your competitors can't do as, as well as you? What, what's, what sort of proprietary about the software you have? So uh, basically, we, we set out to build our own uh, proprietary core banking software. And uh, a lot of new banks do that. And we're actually inspired by uh, some of them. And the reason why we needed to do that is we needed to ship uh, our uh, uh, lending products very fast to the customers. So you want to think of a new product uh, in embedded financing and offering new uh, consumer type of loans. Uh, you want to be able to ship that uh, to the customer, uh, to the hands of the customer in, in the app as soon as possible. So you don't want to deal with a lot of integrations with different core bankings. You also need customer behavior to be baked into the system uh, and to take uh, very fast decisions uh, in terms of credit. So this actually allows us, yes, it gives us a huge competitive advantage. Uh, it, it makes us very fast in shipping products. And it gives us the ability to scale both uh, operationally and, of course, uh, scale in terms of very fast decisions. Uh, and b- because of our mission, uh, some of our competitors actually approached us uh, to sell our software as uh, as a service, and we actually signed uh, two of them, and uh, we're very open to that. Yeah, fascinating. And, and so, talking of scale, and, and talking of what you, you were just saying about you know growing a software as a service business as well, what what is this funding round? What's that going to make possible for you that maybe you couldn't have done before the funding round? What's it going to enable you to do? Uh, 
It's a, it's a very big uh, vote of confidence. Uh, I think uh, our mission now is to uh, grow internationally uh, through M&As. So the funding round, I think, is going to be used in, uh, in looking at uh, different interesting businesses in different countries so that we can uh, go in with our uh, full range of products. Uh, and uh, that would be, uh, on the short term, what's, uh, what's happening with the funding round. Okay, let's let's bring you in on this this story. Obviously, Egypt is you know huge huge country, um, most populous country in North in North Africa and the Middle East. I think it's um, third most populous country in in Africa. Um, Katie, are you seeing lots of exciting fintechs coming out of other parts of Africa? What, what do you think of this news? Do you see lots of opportunity in 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 these regions? Yeah, I mean, I I see a ton of opportunity. I think you know where fintech has really done the best is where there is a burning need. I think in the US, you know, some of our consumer focused fintechs have struggled a little bit because there just isn't that burning need, you know, for for um, different experiences or just being brought into the financial system the same way that there is in places like Africa and elsewhere. Um, so I think sort of that ability to solve for the the true underbanked um, is incredible. And, and there's a ton of opportunity there. I mean, I think that's why the concept of a super app, you know, does so well, you know, in some of the more developing countries is because, you know, that we have these lower cost uh, smartphones, and they don't have the storage that we have, um, you know, on iPhones in the US. And so being able to do everything from one app, and it works, and it's seamless, and, you know, it helps you to manage your financial life is incredibly valuable. Um, Krista, you're an angel investor. Um, obviously, this company is a little bit beyond angel angel stage. But um, as you think about sort of investments, or as, as investors think about these sort of later stage companies, what kinds of things are you thinking about and looking for in sort of later stage? What do you think Ahmed's investors were looking for? What do you think made them excited about um, you know, giving the company invest, investing more money in the company? Well, I think there's probably two or three things happening in, in parallel here. One is that I think that fintech obviously is pretty mature in the Western developed world. And if you want to do a deal, get in early or capture something new, it kind of makes sense as an investor that you broaden your horizon and, and pursue newer markets, right? So that I think is, is one thing, like where is there still inefficiencies that we can capture and, you know, therefore do a better investment. I think the other is the fact that it's a huge country, a huge market. I don't know what the ambitions are to go on, go beyond Egypt, but obviously it's a, a very um, a big part of the world. So I think that's another thing that's a very a big addressable market. And I think the third thing is going to be around revenues, but especially in, in the kind of, sort of economic and certain times that we live in right now. I think more investors are, are less excited about growth for the sake of growth at any price or any cost, but rather, you know, what is the unit economics that we talked about earlier? Um, and does this scale? Can we actually make money in, in a foreseeable future or, you know, be profitable in the foreseeable future? So I think. Those are probably some of the key things I, I think would, would resonate the, or be on top of mind for a lot of investors. So, Ahmed, there's a couple of obvious questions to you there. One is, what, what were the investors asking you about? What were they excited about? And two, what can you tell us about your plans to uh, expand into other countries? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, investors uh, were always excited about our growth. We have a huge growth factor. And uh, ever since... 
beginning of uh, 2022, uh, investors started uh, really asking about our profitability, which is which is something we got going for us. Uh, we're very, we're a very profitable uh, company, uh, and uh, that's uh, that drove uh, a lot of interest because w- when you're profitable and you have a huge growth, that's really a testament to uh, the company, the market, uh, and uh, and and the ability to to grow and scale. Um, so basically, uh, I, I can't really disclose the, the countries we're looking at, but you're looking at countries that have a similar uh, demographics to, uh, to Egypt. Uh, so basically an underbanked uh, population uh, and with a lot of room to, uh, to enhance financial services through our digital products. Um, Kate and Christopher, I'm going to come back to you two for the for the sort of close on this story. So there's elements of a super app here, right? The ride hailing, the you know the variety of services and so on. Do we think we might see that same kind of super app that we've seen in parts of Southeast Asia and China and so on? Do we think we might see the beginning of that of that in in Egypt and the in the Middle East here? Um, do we think that's a strategy that's going to work in other markets? Um, maybe Kate first. I, I think it depends on the market. And in, in this case, I certainly think, you know, it's likely to be successful. I think a lot of it depends on on the need, right? You could make the argument that in the States, for example, where Apple has, what, 50% iPhone penetration uh, or share of the smartphone market that, you know, and they provide this ecosystem, you know, are they kind of our version of a super app? I don't know. But there doesn't seem to be that kind of need um, in some of the more Western markets, in my opinion, that there is, you know, in, in places like Egypt, there's a reason for it, you know. Um, and I think we haven't at least tapped into that kind of need in the West. Yeah, and I think I would only add to that. Uh, my perception is that in, in the developed Western economies, there's probably a lot of big brands, established brands, and that the benefit of, of kind of being late to the party, the fintech party, is that you can cherry pick the, the most successful ventures and initiatives and you can kind of with from a standing start create that fundamental principles of something that can become a super app so i think they have all the potential to become a super app like the ones we see in, in, in asia well this is really really exciting stuff congratulations ahmed to, to you and all of your team um super exciting news and i think we're all going to be watching uh to see to see what happens next and and you know maybe we should have a sweepstake on which market you're going to go into next all right <laughs> uh, we're just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly heads up people we've got a brand spanking new report dropping very soon The 11FS Pulse Report 2023 will officially land later this month. What were the best fintech user journeys of 2022? Which UX trends are set to take the new year by storm? All of this will be answered and more with winning insights from our 11FS Pulse team experts and global industry leaders. Go to info.11fs.com slash pulse dash report to download and to find out more. That's info.11fs.com slash pulse dash report. We can't wait to share what we've been working on. Welcome back. 
Before we get on to the next half of today's news, a quick reminder to go and check out the latest episode of our Fintech Insider Insights show, where my colleague Kate Moody is joined by expert guests from Comply Advantage and Fintrail to discuss the growing trends in financial crime and the innovative solutions looking to keep people's money safe. So go and check that out wherever you got this podcast. Uh, Why not queue it up after this one? Okay, let's get on to our next story, which is... Uh, according to CNBC, that 75% of LGBTQ plus startup founders hide their identity from investors, according to a UK survey. The survey from Proud Ventures, which is a network of LGBTQ plus venture capitalists and angel investors, has found that 75% of LGBTQ plus startup founders and 79% of investors conceal their sexual orientation or gender identity. Proud Ventures, with the backing of Founders Factory and Investec Wealth, surveyed 118 founders and 61 investors based in the UK for the research. It's the first report of its kind in the UK startup community, according to Proud Ventures. Of the founders who conceal their identities from investors, 45% said they felt it wasn't relevant to the situation. Some 27% said they didn't feel comfortable sharing that information with investors, while 18% feared it may harm fundraising efforts. The report encouraged tech investors to openly show their support for LGBTQ plus founders, add pronouns to their email signatures, Zoom and LinkedIn profiles, and track diversity in their portfolio companies. Krista, you wrote a great uh, opinion piece for our unfiltered newsletter um, titled Fintech VCs Must Do More to Help the LGBTQ plus Community. So do the findings of this report reflect... um, what you've seen and heard with, with VCs. Yeah, absolutely. So in my previous business, Divido, I raised $50 million over the course of a seed or pre-seed all the way to, to Series B. And I can't say that any of my investors sort of uh, announced or declared their sexual orientations. Uh, neither did I inquire about that, to be fair. Uh, and neither did I manifest my sexual orientation when meeting with them, or nor did they ask about that. So I, I kind of agree with the 45% that said they didn't feel it was relevant for, for the situation. But uh, um, yeah, it, I think it makes sense. Um, I, I'm an angel investor as well, and I've done about 35 uh, deals the last 18 months. And similarly, I don't sort of go out of my way to find companies that are backed by people that identify in a certain way. Um, But equally, when I see an opportunity, I kind of look at it on its own merits. So it's almost like the identity, whilst I'm sure it's very important for the individual, it's kind of secondary from assessing a business opportunity. Even though I'm gay, it's not the one thing that defines me and it certainly doesn't confine me. Uh, There's way more to me, my personality, you know, than that one single data point. I, I mean, I totally agree that it's 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 absolutely not relevant. But do you, do you think there's any truth to the fears that of the, the people who felt it could harm their their fundraising efforts? Um, did you have you I don't know if, if, any sense that that that's true? Do you think that's an unjustified fear? Yeah, I, I think that different countries and different cultures are on different trajectories when it comes to talking and thinking about inclusivity and you know having a, a unbiased opinion uh, but in my I guess I'm fortunate in the sense that I where I've lived and where I've worked um, I don't think that any of my investors would have 
treated me any different, would they have known? Um, but I guess, and I, maybe this is a stupid thing to say, but I think it's the U.S. military. They have this thing about don't ask, don't tell. Um, so you can be who you are, uh, but you don't need to like ask others about who they are or what they represent or believe in. And, and similarly, that therefore means that you don't have to tell. So it's almost like, uh, you know, a, a quiet agreement, if you will. Uh, I guess one thing I'm a bit nervous about is people that make themselves into a victim that, for example, they blame uh, something that's happened to them or, or something they are experiencing as the reason for, for maybe not getting funding or whatever. Um, I like to think that good business you know, should speak for itself. Uh, the numbers should really do the selling and not, not so much the uh, personality behind the business, although obviously that kind of plays in on some level. You need the founder to drive and motivate the business. Um, Definitely. Kate, if they conducted the same survey in the States, uh, which is where Krista is right now, um, do you think you'd get similar sorts of findings? Do you think this is you know, common? Um, yeah, I, I've definitely seen some data that suggests a similar story in the US. And, and that's not necessarily surprising to me, but it goes back to, you know, what we've been saying throughout our conversation that it really shouldn't matter if your fundamentals are good. Um, you know, hopefully that's a non-issue. Ahmed, I'd love to bring you in as well, because we, we've often talked on this podcast about, you know, the difficulties that um, startup founders from a whole variety of different backgrounds, people from different religions, different ethnic groups, um, different gender orientations, you know, genders, you know, men, women, etc., about how some of those groups have much more difficulty raising funding than others. Um when you're, you know, pitching, you know, you're trying to raise funds as you did recently, how much of your sort of personality do you have to bring it? How much do you feel the VCs and the investors are investing in in you as a person? And how much do you think it's just your ideas? I mean, is a, a brilliant idea is enough? Or do you think the investors are also kind of looking at you as a person? I think that would depend on the stage of the company. I would certainly say that in our earlier stages, uh, we were... Uh, more personal with the investors, not as in personal views, but like they, I think the investor was looking for uh, a solid founding team that, uh, that can actually grow a business. Uh, as the business grows, I think it's more of numbers, fundamentals, and, and how the business is, is, uh, is growing overall. Uh, I think it, it really depends on the stage. Do you think we should be sort of concerned about, there were some reports of discrimination in this in this report that was, was published. Um, do you think that's something we should be concerned about, Krista? I mean, do you think there are investors who are perhaps discriminating against, you know, certain groups of founders because of their own biases and preferences or... Yeah, you mentioned that the uh, the company did the survey, sort of recommending that investors should declare more publicly that they support LGBTQ plus founders. But I think we can almost take a step back, and if they're gonna investors are gonna declare anything, it should be that they're equal opportunity investor, right? Like they should be blind to all the other points you mentioned: race, religion, gender, and so on. It shouldn't be just that they are open to this kind of diversity, if, if you will. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that's the key thing that, um, 
investors need to um, be blind to this. But I think there's also going to be natural affinity groups, right? So maybe if you, in my case, I was born in Sweden. So when I go meet Swedish investors, there's going to be some affinity there because we happen to share some culture, you know, history together. And you'll see the same with maybe female investors feel the same about meeting female founders. And, and there's no different with LGBTQ+. And I think if you are an investor in a fund, you might want to seek out uh, events that are hosting uh, founders from that community to kind of declare your your uh, openness and willingness and your support of, of the course. But uh, on, on the big picture, I don't think it should be limited to your sexual orientation. It should be about, you know, blind in terms of the business should do the talking rather than um, how you identify. Totally, 100%. Kate, do you, do you think there's anything any more that can be done to to uh, support diversity and to support founders of all sorts of different you know backgrounds and origins? I mean, can this be part of sort of environmental and social goals? Um, do you see any ways that the you know, the industry can sort of improve and make things better? I do think that diversity in general can be improved in the venture capital world, um, both in terms of where funding goes, but also in terms of, you know, the representation or the many different kinds of people that that make up um, pools of investors. So I think that that's probably one thing that I would say um, we could do better on for sure. I mean, we're all talking about how, you know, these things should be a non-issue and it should be equal opportunity. And, you know, I, I hope that most of the time that that's true. Um, but I think sometimes, of course, it's not. And, you know, in those cases, like it would be b better or probably more helpful um, to just kind of have more diversity and diversity of thought as well throughout the entire ecosystem. Okay, well, I know this story is going to come back, um, sadly. Um, I, I imagine this will be covered in future episodes, but um, good for uh, the team at Proud Ventures for uh, raising, this, raising this issue. Okay, our final big story is that Buy Now, Pay Later OpenPay has gone under as creditors chase its debts. So this was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald. Buy Now, Pay Later OpenPay has gone into receivership and shut its platform after it was voluntarily suspended from the Australian Securities Exchange on Friday. It's the latest casualty in Australia's troubled Buy Now, Pay Later sector. OpenPay is a platform through which customers can pay for purchases from the company's partnered merchants in installments, paying a fee to do so. Worth about 45 million Australian dollars in market capitalization, the Buy Now Pay Later is a smaller player compared with its counterpart Zipco, which is worth 512 million Australian dollars, and Afterpay, which is worth a whopping 14 well, 15 billion Australian dollars. Following the ASX, Australian Securities Exchange, announcement, customers will no longer be able to use the OpenPay platform for new purchases, but will still need to pay back any outstanding balances in accordance with their existing agreements. Krista, I'm going to come to you first because you have lots of experience with Buy Now, Pay Later as the founder of Divido. Um, how different does the market look today than when many of these businesses were being set up in the first place? How much has the market changed with more competition, the macro environment, and so on? I think there's a couple of things fundamentally. The number one thing being the cost of capital. So 
So obviously, it was very easy for a lot of funds to get access to, or, or buy now, pay later companies to get access to capital to lend to consumers a couple of years ago. That is no longer the case. It's more expensive, so therefore you need to pass on the cost to the retailer and or to the consumer, which makes it probably less attractive um, and therefore makes it harder for, for them to keep growing. The second thing, I haven't looked at the stats. This may not be true, but as a, as a hunch, uh, in times of economic uncertainty, consumers tend to default more often on loans. And this probably isn't the, the most important loan for them to keep paying. You know, they probably hold off on defaulting on their mortgage or hold off defaulting on their car. I mean, those are the kinds of payments they probably got out of their way to make. But if you bought, a, I don't know, a, a nice dress for $100 and you can't make that payment, it's probably quite easy in your head to justify why well, you should just ignore making that particular payment. But I think there's another fundamental thing happening as well, which sort of goes a little bit at odds with the with companies going under, such as this one. And that is that consumers have been taught to expect buy now, pay later everywhere they shop now. It's, all, it's a hygiene factor, especially for slightly higher value items, maybe not groceries, but if you're spending a few hundred pounds or a few hundred dollars, uh, you want to be able to be given the option to spread the cost. I think that's a little bit of a contradiction to the fact that companies are in demand but um, are, are, are struggling. And, and I should point out the Divido is a software company. We just license the technology to people that want to enter the space. So Divido itself is not on the hook for, for people defaulting, but clearly our end customers uh, might be. So I uh, just want to make that point clear as well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Ahmed, I'd love, to, I'd love to bring you in here because um, the, the Egyptian economy is going through a really tough time in the past couple of years, particularly since the Russian invasion of Ukraine pushed up grain prices and so on. It's put a lot of pressure on Egypt's economy because Egypt's a huge grain importer. So you must be presumably worried because you know you, you have a lot of um, you know a lot of underbanked and unbanked uh, people in Egypt. And while your business has thrived by helping them with loans, you presumably you're also concerned to to make sure that that doesn't get out of balance. Um, how, are you, how are you guys sort of, sorry, your, your team, how are you thinking about sort of your lending business? Are, are you concerned about default rates increasing? Uh, any lender would be concerned about default rates. Uh, I think uh, the, the, the one thing we, we focus on is while we're lending to underbanked, we're a regulated business. And uh, regulation here is important, especially when you have uh, a lot of tailwind from the regu uh, regulator uh, in uh, pushing out uh, laws uh, for uh, for non-banking financial institutions. The importance here is you get to keep proper uh, capital uh, adequacy ratios. You have to have uh, proper vetting of your customer. Uh, you, you actually have to see or check their FICO scores, uh, some sort of income verification. Uh, all these things that come with regulation uh, makes you less, a bit less worried uh, on the default side. Of course, the whole economic situation is uh, is worrying, but we think that so far uh, it's been it's been going well. We have very low default rates, and uh, we've been actually uh, growing uh, a lot. That we we had to uh, we've been uh, we've been offloading uh, some of our loan book to uh, to banks. Uh, to keep up with our growth. And uh, so so up until now, I think it's a very healthy uh, situation for us, for banks, 
uh, and the loan size, of course, increases as uh, inflation uh, grows. Uh, but so far, I don't think there's anything alarming about default rates. Good. Good to hear it. Um, Kate, were you surprised to see a a buy now, pay later player shutting its doors? Um, Was that something you were sort of half expecting to see? Or do you think this is a one-off? Or do you think this is part of a wider trend? I think it's it's part of a wider trend in the sense that, you know, these companies are struggling a little bit in the changing economic environment, you know, as we've discussed, consumer spending is tightening, um, you know, default rates could become a problem. So it's it's not surprising to me in that sense. I mean, we're having similar issues in the US, um, a firm which is one of our largest buy now pay later companies um, laid off 19% of its workforce yesterday, um, and the stock fell tremendously on, on earnings miss. So, you know, I think this is a broad sort of um, market problem. It's not specific to this company, and it's it's not specific to Australia either, in my opinion. Krista, do you, do you agree? Is this, um, is this a sort of winnowing out of weaker players and smaller players, or do you think the, the sector as a whole is, is going to have a really tough time over the next uh, few years? Yeah, so like there's without a shadow of a doubt, this has become a hygiene factor for retailers selling anything costing more than, you know, a few hundred pounds or a hundred dollars. So it will, it's not going to go away. It, it's here to stay and it's only going to get bigger and it's going to eat up sort of the, the cake from the credit cards uh, going forward. But what we have seen, I think, is an over um, uh, over establishment of uh, early stage fintechs trying to muscle in on this space and, uh, and I think it's very natural in times of like the ones we're going through right now that there will be some weeding out of the smallest players like these guys in favor of the more stable more mature more experienced uh, actors um, Divido's biggest customers are established national retail banks like HSBC in the UK they uh, are offering buy now pay later um, and they're only offering more and more of it, and they're doing it in a safe way, in a compliant way, uh, in an affordable way. Um, so I think there's definitely going to be winners and losers here, and it's definitely going to be the bigger and more established that's going to uh, come come successful out the other end. And we, um, I'm sure we're going to see more more smaller players uh, go under in the next year or so, or be acquired. And you know, we see the consolidation of the industry, which I think is also very natural at this stage. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we'll we'll see we'll see consolidation. Um, Kate, last question. This one may be a little bit unfair on you because um, I don't know how well you know the Australian market, but we seem to have had a number of Australian fintechs uh, shutting down. Obviously, you know, lots of creative people in Australia. There've been lots of you know exciting startups coming out of Australia, but they also seem to have had maybe more of their fair sh- more than their fair share of 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 closures. Do you think there's anything special going on in Australian fintech? Are they just a bit quicker to work through the cycles of what what business models work and what don't? Um, or is it just sheer chance that we seem to have had a number of Australian fintechs going down? Honestly, I think we're seeing it here too. I think, you know, fintech in general is is going through sort of a, a winnowing of sorts, um, you know, similar to the buy now, pay later sector where, you know, we're going to see the strongest survive. I think that's true of of the broader fintech ecosystem as well. You know, we've talked for years about how, you know, fintech has never been through a full economic cycle. It's never seen a true downturn, you know, and now we're we're starting to see what that might actually look like. So I don't think it's specific to Australia. Uh, I don't think 
you know, it's specific to the U.S. or Europe or, or anywhere else. I think, you know, globally, the market is kind of, you know, going through an evolution. And on the other side, probably the companies that come out will be incredibly strong and, and hopefully have, you know, really good value propositions for, for customers that are even better than what we've been seeing in the last few years. Okay, so buy now, pay later is here to stay. Watch your credit scores and, your, you know, your credit risk. And um, we're seeing a winnowing uh, of, of some of the smaller, smaller weaker fintechs um, get squeezed. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, which is a quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. And because I haven't got a co-host, it's just me uh, doing it. So I'll just quickly summarize a quick uh, couple of stories. So Zopa has secured £75 million to kick off its 2023 M&A. Uh, this was reported in Altfi. So bucking the trend of down rounds and valuation cuts, uh, UK lender Zopa has just secured a massive £75 million in funding. The digital bank, with a vision to become Britain's best bank, said the deal cements and markedly enhances its unicorn status, although it did not disclose its new valuation. It hit a valuation of a billion dollars in October 2021 when it raised $300 million in a round led by SoftBank's Vision Fund 2, and since then has gone on to reach profitability, just 21 months after winning its banking license and pivoting out of peer-to-peer lending. To find out a bit more, we reached out to Claire Gambardella, Chief Customer Officer, to find out what this funding round allows Zopa to do that wasn't possible before. Last week, Zopa were pleased to announce that we raised £75 million of additional investment. This investment came from existing investors in Zopa and is a great vote of confidence in the growth that the business has delivered in the last couple of years since becoming a fully regulated bank. The investment will allow us to meet our capital requirements as we grow our balance sheet in 2023 and beyond. This means that we can continue to grow and extend our existing product set, which has shown huge momentum in market and also extend our product set in order to meet new consumer needs, both organically and inorganically. We're really excited about the opportunities that this investment opens up for us and the year ahead. So I think this is a really interesting story because I remember when Zopa launched, showing my age a little bit here, um, as one of the very first peer-to-peer lenders super interesting idea, very clever, you know, you avoid the cost of holding regulatory capital by matching buyers and sellers, uh, sort of investors and, and, and borrowers. Really, really interesting idea that proved very difficult to execute in practice because of the difficulty of finding people who wanted to invest in consumer debt. Um, and it's so interesting to see Zopa completely pivot away from that business model over time. It's one of those really good ideas that turns out to be really hard to execute in practice. I love Zopa. I think it's a really interesting brand, great people. Um, so I wish them the best of luck. But it's sad seeing that that original business model just didn't quite work. Okay, so let's bring everybody back for the final section uh, of the show, looking at a more lighthearted story from the past week. And this is that HSBC staff have got a new uniform of jumpsuits and jeans in the UK. HSBC has become the latest big company to announce a shift to a more casual uniforms for its 4,000 branch staff in the UK. The new range includes jumpsuits and menopause-friendly garments for women, ethnic wear including tunics and hijabs, and chinos and jeans. The bank said the uniform redesign mirrored the more casual new look of the bank's branches. 
HSBC UK's Director of Distribution, Jackie Uhi, says the days of bowler-hatted bankers and intimidating bank branches with rows of screens was over. The modern-day banker is still smart and professional, but much more casual and approachable, she said. So is this the end of formal work? Kate, if bankers are giving up on formal wear, is this the end of trousers and the dreaded ties that men have to wear? I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on on what um, people feel most comfortable and most competent. And I would hope that they could still wear a suit and tie if if that's how they they feel most themselves. I think casual uniform feels like a little bit of an oxymoron to me. <laughs> um, but I, I certainly support, you know, um, embracing more casual wear in the office. Ahmed, what's um, what's standard wear in in banks in Egypt? Uh, banks in Egypt are pretty formal. Do you think that will change? Is there are there any, uh, or is it just fintechs bringing in you know different dress codes? It's it's very difficult to imagine it changing with banks here. Uh, I think fintechs are uh, bringing the the casual part in, and uh, we we always say that we're the friendlier version of a bank. <laughs> so. Krista, um, does just making staff feel comfortable? Does that create a better working environment? You know, what what are your views on? Um, uniforms and smart clothing? Well, I guess from my own business, my own experience is that you encourage your people to bring them their best selves to work, to be themselves, you know, um, and that's really how we can get the most out of people that they feel that they are accepted for who they are. So I guess from an employee perspective, this makes perfect sense from employer branding perspective. I guess uh, I just wonder what the customers feel. Uh, uh, maybe they're more conservative than than the the people working there, and maybe that will be a a conflict uh, going forward. But I'm, I'm, without a doubt, I'm sure the employees must be appreciative of this uh, choice. What about trust? Do you think we do we subconsciously trust people who are smartly dressed more than people who are casually dressed? Is there anything in that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it maybe depends on your kind of age or your generation or kind of the culture you're from. Um, I, I certainly, I mean, I'm not that old, uh, but I'm also not that young. I, I certainly don't oppose to someone wearing a, a suit and a tie when I'm negotiating a mortgage or something, if, if that's uh, what I was doing. But if I'm in McDonald's getting a hamburger, probably wear a fancy <laughs> shirt, a, a tie, uh, or, you know, that feels over the top, even though some branches do, I guess. Um, All right. Last quick question for you then. Do do you have any niche financial services swag, right? So 11FS, you know, loves to have a t-shirt. Um, there's, uh, you know, rumors of online groups of people sort of swapping uh, items from sort of defunct fintechs, you know, t-shirts and merchandise and so on. Have you ever either issued or picked up any uh, sort of swag or gifts or clothing from fintechs that you're particularly pleased with or shocked by or... Um, Kate, you look as if you've got something. <laughs> I have a collection of T-shirts. I'll just leave it at that. I've been collecting them for a few years, and I wear them all. But I don't have any fintech swags, uh, but a friend of mine, he's an early employee at Uber, and he gave me an Uber hoodie with the old logo that most people don't even remember now. And he's so gutted because he's lost his, but I still have mine, so he's very upset about that. And how about you, Ahmed? Uh, we, we have a, a Highland uh, T-shirt uh, but that's the, the the only one I have, and I'm very open. Uh, if you, if you want to send me any, it's, uh, it's okay. So, would you all like to receive a fintech insider T-shirt, uh, panelists? 
Yeah, I can't have enough Definitely. for all of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> of course. Okay. And, and Kate, our producers want to know how many t-shirts you have, how many fintech t-shirts you've got. Uh, okay, this is going to be a guesstimate. I would say at least 15, maybe 20. Okay, okay that's, not, that's not too bad. That's, I was expecting more. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Well, you've been delightful guests. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. So that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much, uh, all of you, for joining. Where can people find out uh, a little bit more about you? Uh, Ahmed, let's start with you. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and your company? Um, uh, on our website, uh, halan.com. And uh, uh, me personally, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, uh, Ahmed Mohsen. So. Fantastic. Krista? Uh, same, same with LinkedIn. You can follow me on LinkedIn or reach out there if you want to message me. And Kate? You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And all of our research is at ccginsights.com. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn or through 11fs.com. So thank you to all of you for listening. Um, please do join the conversations on social media or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you so much and goodbye. Goodbye.